Okay, Slavoj. Um, since To Be or Not To Be, one of the greatest movie, uh, movies ever made by Lubitsch, who was born close by, um, was a movie about uh, the resistance against fascism. It's a comedy dealing with a Polish theater company who kind of impersonates um, Gestapo and even Hitler in order to protect the Polish resistance. A wonderful movie. You will all enjoy it, whoever stays here. Um, my question, my first question for the evening is, is a comedy a meaningful weapon against totalitarianism and against terror? And in times like these, with all the terrorists uh, bombing European cities now, can you imagine a comedy taking place right now? Absolutely. And I will, but, but, I would like to begin, if you allow me a little bit theoretical, very short speech, with nonetheless uh, avoiding the greatest mistake, which is automatically celebrating comedy, or rather, more generally, laughter as in itself liberating. If there ever was a book, and the film made upon it, with which I disagree, it is Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. You know, this idea that the second part of uh, Aristotle's uh, poetics about comedy is too subversive, and so on, and so on. I claim that already from ancient Greece, we can learn the lesson. One would have thought Sparta was militaristic, disciplined, Athens, Mary, Comet, and so on. But you know that it was the opposite. To protect the democratic spirit in Athens, in debates on the square, it was forbidden to make jokes, not to make fun of your opponents. While in Sparta, humiliating opponents was a well-elaborated ritual, like to amuse their public, the Spartans, the ruling class, uh, took some of those uh, uh, half-slaves without rights, uh, made him drunk or fed him with some drugs, and then they let children to kick that person, to humiliate him, and so on and so on. And it doesn't only, uh, it, it started there, but then look at the, uh, look at the, all the strategies that we have of laughter, of making fun in a brutal way, from brutal modes of, uh, of humor, like read Stalin's speeches. It's extremely brutal humor, making, making fun of, of Trotsky's Bukharinists and so on. All this English upper class brutal humor, or the cynical humor, where precisely you signal through humor that you do not take seriously your own ideology. And the interesting thing is that I was obsessed by this in my own country, ex-Yugoslavia, where, I don't know how it was here in DDR Zeiten, but where it wasn't simply that the majority of the people did not take the ruling ideology seriously. It was much more radical. And here things get tragic. Uh, it was a condition to be part of the, let's call it, inner nomenclatura circle, not to take the ruling ideology seriously. I had in early 70s two friends who worked at the Central Committee, part of some of the party, part of some cultural subcommittee, and they lost their jobs. Why? Because they really believed in self-management 
socialism and for those in power this was automatically this was taking the ruling ideology seriously meant the first step towards uh, uh, towards uh, towards dissidents so even charlie hebdo okay we all sympathized with them and so on and so on but if we abstract from those attacks i think what they were doing was precisely this apparently irreverent but really clownish making fun which perfectly fitted those in power and nobody really was worried about it but there is and now we come to lubitsch and so on there is another type of humor did you ever think about this strange fact that the practically all there are just a couple of really great films about concentration camps holocaust and so on are comedies what does this mean i think it means something very precise that for the horror which reaches beyond tragedy because you know tragedy is never really terrifying to the end tragedy has a tragic hero which means you still retain some minimal dignity so that you can do the heroic gesture i'll rather die kill me and so on but imagine a scene like this in auschwitz or gulag or whatever let's limit ourselves to the above named popular place auschwitz uh, imagine a nazi shouting at a jew and a jew stands up kill me but i will never it's ridiculous the situations were too horrible in auschwitz you can see too much to the nazis this is why and i've written about it in a very problematic way but i'm proud to tell you that in israel i developed this and people who were there with number statute agreed with me that the concentration camps was so horrible that for them the only way to survive it was to experience it as a kind of a dreamlike comedy literally all those crazy gestures and so on you know what i mean it was too horrible to be tragic and i will tell you now an example which is breathtaking i couldn't believe it some of my bosnian don't worry i will not speak too long i'm approaching the end yeah some of my bosnian friends told me that you know that now in bosnia there is a whole series of srebrenica jokes you know that city which was slaughtered and so on uh, but now comes the catch not by other bosnians making fun of it but by the survivors from srebrenica and some of jokes are totally tasteless but i like them because they are so tasteless one is for this you have to know in ex yugoslavia when you went to buy the meat you said half kilo of beef for and if it's what for the soup they usually asked you with or without bones because the idea is the beef soup is better when you add bones no so okay you have to know this to know the joke the idea is some guy from srebrenica emigrated then he returned there to srebrenica after the war and said uh, and said uh, oh my god i would like to buy a piece of land here what is the price the answer he gets it it depends do you want it with bones or without bones you know bones of the core but you know what's my point i don't think this is cheap making fun of but there is a deep insight in it then things are too tragic to play this for me i'm sorry precisely out of my respect for victims of terrorists and so on you know it, 
give me to throw up all this. Jeshmikari, we are all perish now, and this uh, solidarity, and so on, and so on. You can do this from a comfortable distance, but when you are there in it, sometimes to make a totally tasteless joke is the only way to survive. And my friends, for Sarajevo, were telling me the same story. When Sarajevo was under siege, it was crazy, dirty, sexual innuendos jokes all the time. And you know who knew this? Hegel, my beloved Hegel, with this I will end. When Hegel talks about the passage from tragedy to comedy, for Hegel is a good Hegelian, if there ever was one, uh, comedy is always the higher stage than tragedy. Why? It's not just historically that you had great Greek tragedy and then later comedy. No, no. Comical moment for Hegel, and here we come to Lubitsch and to others, uh, emerges already in the middle of tragedy. Hegel has a wonderful example. You know Antigone. There is a scene when Antigone is condemned, isolated, then she delivers a speech. Here is a rough translation. I've heard about a guest of ours, daughter of Tantalus, and then, okay, she describes some mythical creatures from Greek mythology, how they suffered, chained to a rock, and so on, comparing herself to them. You know what Hegel's reading? It's incredibly contemporary. It's that this is a comical moment. Why? Because Antigone is already her own PR agent. She already is thinking like, oh my God, I must invent a good image of myself, how I will be perceived. And she's, you know what is she doing? This is Hegel's definition of comical moment. When you are a certain person on stage, but then you act as if you observe yourself from the outside and made impossible comments. This is why, even when it's not funny, Brecht is immanently comical. What's the great Brechtian scene? That an actor comes on stage and says, I'm a bourgeois journalist. I'm paid to confuse and corrupt working class. Now I will do the, you know that, you do something, but at the same time, from an impossible neutral position, you, you reflect on it. And that's my, that's I think, but in a much more subtle way. Our great friend who is sitting there, I think, Lubitsch, knew this. Which is why I claim uh, uh, that uh, uh, the film that you will see, To Be or Not To Be, is all about this. All the Nazi jokes are as if, you know, they are all... And you know what's the most subversive comical device in the film? This touches precisely what I was improvising about, Lubitsch is to be or not to be. First, you think it's just the Polish actors who improvise and imitate in an exaggerated, stupid way the Nazis, that they act the Nazis. But all the best jokes occur, I will not bore you, you will say, that when then the real Nazi comes, like that concentration camp Erhard, he in a way imitates himself. He's even more ridiculous, you know. Nobody is himself. A good Nazi is acting a good Nazi, and so on. You know, like, really at the beginning of the film, after the famous Heil Myself Hitler, no? The director accuses an actor, he says, but listen, you're not like Hitler. You're just an ordinary guy who tries to be Hitler. And the actor actually, but this was Hitler. Yeah. An ordinary guy who wanted to, to act like Hitler. And, and he, can uh, I conclude with a really dirty joke? <laughs> 
that I learned in Palestine, but it's not dirty. This is what you get in Palestine, I like it, from a Palestinian Christian. They even applied the same logic, I'm sorry if some of you know this joke, it's from one of my books, on Jesus Christ himself. The story is this one. Jesus Christ is doing his work before he died, and then he was tired. And one of the apostles tells him, why don't we go to Galilee, see, and then, that's the irony, totally ahistorical, and have a holiday, a free weekend, play some golf, and so on, you know, to relax. Okay, they do that. And then Christ, with the club, hits the ball. Of course, he misses. The ball goes onto the Galilee Sea water. Christ being Christ, he walks on the water there and picks up the ball and goes back. And Christ says, then, okay, I will try again. The apostle tells him, listen, my Lord, it will not go. This is such a difficult hit that even, uh, who is the great? Tiger Woods. Even Tiger Woods wouldn't be able to do it. Christ said, <laughs> I am, I know it. Okay, he does it again, he fails. Then what happens, and I like this, totally a historical nonsense. At that point, a group of American tourists comes there with a bus and sees Christ walking towards on water and asks the apostle, but who is that crazy guy? What does he think that he is? Uh, Jesus Christ. And apostle answers, no, it's much worse. He thinks he's Tiger Woods, you know. <laughs> like, that's the lesson of Lubitsch. Okay, as they say in Karl May Winnetou, ich habe gesprochen, for the introduction. Thank you. You will be able to continue and enlighten us on the theory of comedy, but uh, one question for Jella, since uh, you are really the specialist in Lubitsch as well, uh, brought together this beautiful book which you can buy outside. There's a uh, Büchertisch out there with uh, all our works. And actually, uh, Jella, um, when Slava was talking about uh, this Übergang between tragedy and comedy, Uh, you have this wonderful scene in To Be or Not To Be where Greenberg, one of the minor actors, is incorporating Merchant of Venice and when he's actually doing exactly what you described, you know, he as being the Jew, so he is enacting the concentration camp uh, victim and he is acting on a behalf in a very, very strange way, which is the most touching scene in the movie. Uh, what are your thoughts about it? Well, I agree, that is probably the, the most tragic part of this movie and it repeats three times. Uh, and I think in the first two times, uh, Greenberg is playing this Jew. So he wants, he's an ambitious actor but, but always gets the minor parts, so he really wants to be the great one and he um, says this dialogue in order to show that he's capable of being a great actor. But then the third time that he repeats it is when there is this really troublesome situation where there is a real threat that the Nazis will capture all the Polish actors and then he's not acting anymore and this is really probably the most sentimental part of this movie. And I'm sorry, I, I don't have interpretation, but I would go along the lines that maybe sometimes uh, it's in inherent for a comedy to have this uh, a bit of tragic or, or sentimental line to keep the bone of the comedy going. But this yet has to be developed, uh, theoretically. No, friends call me Fidel, not because of politics, but like, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. 
friends used to call him Fidel. It, for me, it will not end well, I know. No, 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 just a repeat, uh, returning to that scene. But now, I want to very softly, gently oppose you a little bit. I think that this procedure, you know, that great dialogue, you know, but if you prick us, pick us, don't we bleed? Uh, but I, I don't like the underlying message, which is, aren't beneath our skin all the same humans. You know, once I imagined, and admit it, this is the dirtiest dream you can imagine, that they were to capture Hitler or some of this, and then he would say, but look at me, I'm not a demon. If you prick me, uh, if you tingle me, I will laugh. If you prick me, there will be blood, you know, like, I'm sure Hitler would say two things. The first thing he would say, uh, this is always what racists say, this pseudo-concrete approach, Hitler would have said, oh, you looked at things out of context, you know. You should put things into context, what we are doing to the Jews, you know. And the second thing uh, he would have said is uh, like, okay, we did some strange things, but remember, I like, you know, Hitler liked like, uh, although he was a vegetarian, he liked a little bit of chicken in his spaghetti, he liked whipped cream, like, am I not human like you? So I am, I, I think this reference, this is ideology, ideology at its purest. This reference to, you know, uh, like uh, warm human beings that we all are beneath the mask of ideology, and that's what I like about uh, this unfortunate book of yours, you know. She's my wife, so first I had great, great, uh, I was afraid, great resistance to that book, like my male chauvinist racist, like, wait a minute, I write the books in the family, what can she do to, to mess with it, no? But then I must say, unfortunately, and it deeply hurt me, because then my next line of defense was, let her write the book, it will be a total shit, you know. Then, okay. It never ends. Now the book is starting translated. Now what remains to me as man, I don't know. But what I wanted to say is that some of the stupid critics uh, attacked you that people, characters, are not real characters but too much of cliches. But I think there is a deep truth in it, and although I'm not totally non-uncritical of Brecht, this is what he knew well. It's not that the cliché the mask that you have is a mask of some deep subjectivity. It's often the opposite. Your truth is in your mask. And all this inner wealth of personality or whatever is here to mask, to obfuscate the horror that you are really doing. You know, here I am X-Files partisan. The truth is out there in what you are doing, not in the inner stories you are telling yourself about it. I would absolutely agree, and uh, maybe this but is But it doesn't question. solve you from what I told you. No, no, I know, Gulag is my, Gulag uh, is yes, yes, sure, no problem, I can wear that mask proudly, yeah. But to repeat my old joke, just this, but you know, you are my good friend, which means in Gulag, you should be so glad for this. You will be there in Gulag, I will be in Moscow, in Central Committee, and you know what? I will show my friendship. You know, in Gulag, you get on Sunday that disgusting borscht, cabbage soup with one rotten fish in it, and I will phone them. You will get two bowls of soup every Sunday. 
Will you not be glad? I will be so glad and actually you can have my bones on this land okay, and afterwards. Sorry, let's go. <laughs> um, so Jella, uh, since we were already talking about your novel um, and about this concept of having uh, characters not being deep on, so, so playing something with the surface. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit about what made you write this, what, what, what made you tick in, in writing this book? What was your position culturally? Because we talked about that, that you were not that happy with a lot of these depictions of a laugh about uh, uh, our life today. And the, so that is a reaction to that. Um, well, first of all, I think that the genre of, genre of comedy uh, brings, I mean, ex exaggerates some characteristic in characters. So it's a necessity of a genre that y you have to give up a certain psychological depth of the characters. And as far as my decision for comedy is concerned, it is very much connected to experiencing Lubitsch, and not only Ernst Lubitsch, but also the whole classical tradition of Hollywood comedy. And what is interesting to me is that, you know, the best comedies were made on, let's say, Great Depression and then on Second World War. So the two greatest perils probably in 20th century and what do some of the greatest directors like Charlie Chaplin, Ernst Lubitsch do, they make comedies. And if you look at uh, prevailing cultural production today, um, at least as I can see it, you have this um, total, uh, there is this desperate or very tragic approach towards uh, subjects, um, love problems or sexuality, towards politics, and this is depicted like uh, realism, you know, like this is the true portrait of reality. And I'm thinking, no, you have these great comedies that approached great perils without uh, losing the edge of the problem. So I'm, I'm still <coughs> wondering, I mean, why, this, why today's culture is so opposed to comedy and so inclined to desperation and tragedy? Could you give us an example of uh, movies which you would put into that, uh, you know, on that shelf? Yeah, I have. W one comes to mind always. It's Shame by uh, Steve McQueen, Steve. the Oscar-winning director. And for those who didn't see this movie, it's about a sexual addict. And for me, the character that is played by Michael Fassbender is actually a great comical uh, character. I mean, could be a comical character because he has this urge, you know, sexual urge, and he cannot stop himself from involving with so, I mean, I mean, many women and cannot have a deeper relationship. But what Steve McQueen does, he, he makes a tragedy out of it. So it's just despair, despair, and the main character even gets punished in the end because he had a fling with homosexuals. So it's also a very conservative movie, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's true, and uh, he even gets more punished because he has this wonderful sister, the singer, who tries to commit suicide, and so he is also up to blame for that. So the whole narrative is actually punishing him right from the beginning. And the yes. best scene is the opening scene when he's sitting and work, going to work, and there's this beautiful girl on the other side playing with her, uh, with her ring, you know, so signifying, oh, I'm married, and then she's also playing with herself. And so there's great comedy, comedy material in there, and that's lost in the movie, right? Absolutely. Can I again comment on it very briefly, but in my dialectical sense, you know. <laughs> that it's important what you already mentioned, this uh, 
paradoxical link between love and appearance, how their true love is always on the surface, but in this paradoxical sense that there is more truth in the surface than in what is behind. For example, maybe Yella, you can help me, which is that Lubitsch, or maybe you also know, film where a love story but which begins like two people, each married with another one, find themselves in a taxi by mistake, and the, the, the man or the woman says, my God, if somebody looks at us, we appear as an old married couple, like you are reading a newspaper, I am looking into my purse or whatever. And I think uh, this Lubitsch was the master of this game of appearances, where... Uh, all of a sudden, you, you think you are playing the game, but then all of a sudden you discover the game is more real than the stupid psychological reality behind. And even, although I am, I'm sorry to disappoint you, although I'm here running against today's stage, but even if in this great opposition, Jane Austen versus Emily Bronte, mm -hmm. this comedy of manners, I am absolutely romantic, Emily Bronte, but in one, I don't know which one, is it Mansfield Park, Jane Austen novels, you have this wonderful idea of a group of young people oppressed, they cannot talk openly, mm -hmm. decide out of boredom to stage a play. But then, let's say I love you, it's oppression, I cannot say it. But as if by chance, I play a role, part of which is to say I love you. You know, and this is what Lacan meant that truth has the structure of a fiction, I think. So I don't believe in psychological reality behind. And the last thing, when we already went, uh, went to horror, even the Holocaust and comedy, this is why when I say great films about concentration camp are comedies, I fanatically, decidedly do not mean La Vita e Bella by Benigni. You know why it's a fake? Because at the end, you are not supposed to laugh. At the end, when the son discovers that his father really sacrificed himself, you have this totally fake, serious moment of sympathy and so on. Uh, okay, I have a whole analysis why that movie is wrong, but I would say that it's wrong because it plays this false game of appearances. Let me make a mental experiment with you, a very brief one, don't be afraid. I have had, I'm obsessed with this, an idea of how to make the film much better. You know what's the basic story? Father and son are arrested, Auschwitz, and in order to enable the son to survive, father invents a myth. This is just a big competition. We can leave at any moment we want, but uh, if we persist to the end, you will get a big prize, whatever. Uh, wouldn't it be even much more, I don't like the word tragic, but desperate film, if at the very end, when he's taken to be shot, really, father, played by Benini himself, were to discover that his son also knew the truth all the time, but that he just pretended to believe his father to make it easier for his father. You know, so that uh, what my good friend Robert Faller, the theorist of interpassivity, developed, there would have been an illusion which would have worked socially without anyone believing in this illusion. 
Nobody has to believe, but socially it would have worked. That would have made a much better film. Which is why I think if you look for a look for a good uh, Holocaust comedy, is it Lina Wertmiller or Liliana Cavani who did Pasqualino Sette Bellezze? It's a totally desperate film, Giancarlo Giannini, a cheap Italian seducer who discovers in Auschwitz that the only way for him to survive is to seduce the capo, who is an extremely ugly, fat woman, and then it's the most tasteless sexual act. And then, what's so nice is that he survives, but doing horrible things, and at the end there is no redeeming crying or whatever. It's just when the laughter stops, it's just not even despair, just totally, total despair, silence or whatever. You know, that's what I find so interesting that, you know, behind laughter there is just uh, despair. And again, that basic message which you find even in a cheap comedy, but strangely I liked it, Jim Carrey, uh, The Mask. You know, this idea that the true passion, it's not, listen, I played this game with my son because I was a horrible father. Once I approached him with the mask, he was terrified. He was four or five years old. Then I put the no mask wonder. off, pulled, and I said, look, it's just your father's stupid face. It's me. He laughed. Now comes the key. Then I put the mask on, and he was again terribly afraid. I claim he was right, because he knew your stupid face means nothing. The mask, that is your Are you deeply impressed? I'm deeply impressed. <laughs> you know, next time we meet, I get you another mask, you know, so a Stalin mask, and then you can uh, show me off. Appearances. What you can do if you have a son, just I, I play with him like this. Yeah, 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 I do that. Okay, that's agreed, agreed. Uh, talking about appearances and uh, what they can do with a couple to fall in love. I think the scene you mentioned is from Heaven Can Wait. I think it's in there, but I'm not c um, completely sure. The other great scene in a Lubitsch movie where appearances uh, begin... Look at her. She knows more about Lubitsch than, she does. than me. Yeah. She does. The other one is uh, the beginning of Trouble in Paradise, where they kind of like pretend to be somebody else. Can you maybe tie the tragic part with the love part? Well, you got me now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's in Trouble in Paradise, th there's this couple of thieves um, who uh, become uh, involved or fall in love uh, while they are playing that they like each other, but at the same time they rob each other. They gently rob each other. And uh, this is how their um, appreciation grows from theft to theft. They become more and more in love because they are infatuated by the way the, the other one was capable of stealing. And Lubitsch does this in this playful, uh, very spirited way, uh, which really functions well. He was really a master of this um, telling things through uh, masks and camouflage. And uh, this is definitely one example of it. Another problem, which is why it's my favorite almost Lubitsch, Trouble in Paradise, because, you know, yes, that's the basic story. They become a couple, robbing rich people, partners, lovers. Then they plan to rob a rich woman, and real love emerges between the hero Herbert Marshall and her, 
And you know what I like about this? We have this usual idea of a crime or transgression that we live in our daily life, it's uh, inert life, ordinary pleasures, and then you do something daring, transgression. But the only way, it's very subtle game that Lubitsch is playing then, is that the two criminals, the ordinary boring life is their criminal life, and the transgression would have been a true passion to marry the rich woman. And I think it's a totally resigned film where the transgression, me, a married man, it's too much, I will return to ordinary life. And as you showed in your uh, introduction to the book analysis, the clearest example of this is another, but it's not my favorite, Lubitsch masterpiece, designed for living, where you, are, you have a couple, three, living in three. That's their ordinary daily life. Then the woman decides to do something horribly transgressive. She wants to marry only one guy, a single one. And then at the end she returns, no, this radical transgression, being married to one, are too much for me. Let's return to our small bourgeois order of three living together and so on, you know. He was, and this, I think, ah, the last thought, is extremely important today when more and more that's why I am for marriage, single couples, and so on. Don't be afraid, I'm not a Catholic fundamentalist, but our ideology predominant today in our late capitalist consumerist societies is, I claim, it's not fanatical love, permanent fidelity. It's more what I call a <coughs> kind of slightly spiritually enlightened uh, uh, consumerism, like hedonism, like be truly who you are, or as my friend Judith Butler would have put it, and here I'm slightly uh, ironic towards her, don't fixate your identity too much, reconstruct yourself every two years, reinvent yourself, change partners, and so on, so that to have a fanatical love for a single partner, it's more and more a transgression, and my proof even James Bond is infected by it. <laughs> Did you notice Quantum of Solace, which is one of the best James Bond, very leftist politically. It's shock. James Bond in that film, remember if you saw it, saves Morales' regime in Bolivia against a big international company which wants to privatize all water there. What more do you want? But did you notice it's the first James Bond without sex with the Bond girl at the end. The same with now I really go lowest of the lowest. I cannot imagine Dan falling lower. Dan Brown, uh, Da Vinci Code and so on. No sex. And the tragedy is with the last film but the previous novel, Angels and Demons. There is sex in the novel, not in the film. I really think that we live in such weird times where to do the traditional thing, you know, this good old-fashioned traditional falling in love, which is the greatest catastrophe you can imagine. <laughs> I really mean it, I'm not kidding. Imagine you are not in love. It's a wonderful life, you know. <laughs> you have one night stands, you go around, you do what you want, you dream with friends and so on, then you fall in love. Everything is ruined, you are focused on death and so on and so on. And I think more and more, uh, even in psychoanalysis, American friends told me that in the 50s, where American psychoanalysis was still dominated by 
these German Puritans who emigrated there, if you were a married man and were not faithful to your wife, this was considered something is wrong with you, a symptom to be interpreted. Like, what are you escaping from, changing women? Today, I was told by my friends, it's practically the opposite. If you are faithful to your wife, oh my God, what fixation is this pathological and so on, you know. The norm is considered the three, reconstruct, reinvent yourself. I quote in a very evil way Judith Butler, you don't have a fixed identity. You should always aware that yourself is a performative construct of enacting different roles and so on and so on. So I think effectively a good old-fashioned passionate love, I repeat here the old joke from my friend Alain Badiou, you don't have it in German, we, uh, they have it in, in, in French and in English, to fall in love, tombe, to fall in love. That's for me great about love, you fall in love. That's why, again, back to Lubitsch, he knew this, no? Because how does uh, Greta Garbo in not my favorite film, Ninochka, how does she dare accept Herbert Marshall? I would never accept him if I were to be a woman as well. You remember, literally, he falls down. And that's the condition of love. And to finish, then I leave you all the, all the time, preceding that fall. And here you see that Lubitsch was a genius. It's also the most Hegelian joke, I'm sorry if you know it, that uh, you can imagine. If you understand that joke, you understand Hegel. Hegelian dialectics of appearance and so on. You know, it's that famous joke when the guy comes to a cafeteria and says, coffee but without cream, please. And the waiter answers, sorry, we have no cream, only milk, so I can give you only coffee without milk. I cannot give you... You know, this is what Hegel meant by bestimmte negation. Like, you know, coffee without cream is materially the same, but it's not symbolically the same... No, immediately, I see you are nervous and so on. Uh, but what I want to say is that if you... But most of you are too young. I remember from early socialist times in Poland, they had the same political joke, you know. The, the idea is you come to the store and ask, for example, I don't know, do you have butter? And they tell you, no, you are in the wrong store. We are the store which doesn't have oil. The store which doesn't have butter is the one across the street and so on. And no, this is, again, and this is how ideology functions today. They, they mostly don't lie at the level of facts. But they lie at this implication. No, they give you coffee. You think it's coffee without cream? No, no, it's just coffee without milk. Okay, read my books if you want to, do, to know what this means. So you have to represent negativity and uh, you described how that has been done. And uh, I liked your notion about romantic love, the event of love, of falling in love. But it's not with her. Her I hate. It's not I know, I know. That's, that's what, why I'm between you. you yeah, know? Yes. So, yes, of course. Um, uh, sorry, can I add something? Pure love declaration. To her. You know, yes. to see the madness where reality is becoming comical in my own country, Slovenia. When we got married, and she being a little bit younger than me, 30 years, 
So when people ask me, how is with the age? Because she is nonetheless mid-30s, my answer is always, I always prefer late middle age, I like elder women and so on. No, no but the point was, now I come to the tragic madness. This wasn't meant as a joke. The right-wing media repeatedly claimed that this proves that I am a, how do you call it, Freemason. Freemason. They claimed that as an inner member of Freemasonry, we had a deal that if a Freemason gets old and sick, they hoped I'm this, that for the last couple of months, another Freemason is obliged to give him his daughter to make... So now I'm very lucky. No, I got pre uh, promising her father that I will soon die, but I'm still here enjoying this daughter, you know. That's the comedy of reality. Um, now I shut up. <laughs> if you are stupid enough to believe me. Remember, I have the invisible whip. Yeah, you asked me to be your domina tonight, yes. and I'll, I'll oblige you, you know, no problem. Uh, you mentioned... Uh, when the concept of love is so strong because the event which happens uh, is kind of retroactively um, constructing all the narrative as if the loving couple was meant to be since the birth of them which or even before. Which again is what Hegel meant by the dialectic of contingency and necessity. Something happens uh, uh, contingently but once it happens, it retroactively becomes a necessity. I'm sorry. Exactly, and that's fiction. And that's pure yes. fiction, yes. and that's pure Yela, and that's pure your novel. The beginning of your novel, can you kind of uh, get us into the mood, and then I will read some pages. And, uh, I'm a little bit tired and want to take a nap. Will, will you not read some pages from her novel? Yes, I will. So that I can take a nap. Absolutely. <laughs> we got her. Well, you are living dangerously now. Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I don't even imagine what will happen this evening in the hotel, how she will beat me. I and, your yeah. and, and, and when her father is coming, you know? Yeah. No, with her father. We Freemasons, we know how. We uh, so where were we? Uh, the beginning of the novel. Yeah. Um, well, the beginning is uh, a tragic one. It starts with a breakup. And we have this main male character who is really desperate because he lost his long-term girlfriend. And uh, when he talks to his best friend, his friend says basically that the only way to get uh, over this tragedy is to get another girlfriend. And so the main character goes like, yes, that's a great idea, but of course things get complicated while he tries to find a new love. I think it's a Maoist novel because she goes, she goes from one to another girl and at the end discovers true love with a lesbian girl. And what I, okay, now I did made the spoiler, but this reminds me of that uh, Maoist motto, you know, because he seduces many girls, it's a kind of a, in between, it's a kind of a reverse, it's not from defeat to defeat to final victory, it's from victory to victory to final defeat, yes. Subtitle of your novel. That's quite good because Alenka Slupancic in her book, uh, The Odd One, one In, part, party members, wonderful, me, yeah. wonderful uh, theory on comedy. Uh, she made that claim as well that actually uh, comedy is not, uh, you know, defeat and transgression via defeat. It's just like people are winning too much, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's very comedy. So comedy is capitalism. Absolutely, yes. No, 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 I really mean it. Hegel knew this. 
Thus Hegel was not, Hegel was basically right that in the modern world, authentic tragedies are no longer possible. And now comes my last revelation from my book to come. So you have the privilege to hear a thought of mine which, where I don't plagiarize myself and repeat. He, sorry, I'm sorry. Hegel, uh, <laughs> Hegel's vision of art which survives the end of art, post-tragic art, is, he says, it's das humanum or what he uses, the idea is this one, that all the perversities, troubles of everyday life, but it's like a surface comedy in the sense that it has no large historical echo. This is why it's no longer tragic, you know. Proper tragedy is when behind a personal conflict there is a large historical conflict. Modernity versus... But Hegel says that since reason has won, all problems, defeats are simple accidental singularities, like it can be very painful if, I don't know, if you or I, I'm not even here, get cancer, but the only way to make it a half tragedy is to do this ecological research thriller, I got cancer because I was drinking water which was poisoned uh, by a company, but it is just cancer, you know, it happened to me in a totally contingent way. And the way Hegel described this universe of, uh, of today's fiction, where just these endless complications, friendships get broken, love affair, but nothing historical happened. I think Hegel was the first theorist of uh, telenovelas, of this TV miniseries. He because what's the point of all that? Cheers or whatever, desperate housewives. It's just these everyday conflicts without great historical dialectic uh, behind it, you know. So Hegel really knew this. And I spoke with a Hegelian philosopher in Brazil who told me Brazilians knew this. There are Hegelian Brazilians who already saw this uh, Hegelian aspect of telenovelas. What Hegel did not see is unfortunately that other aspect that, you know, comedy can also be the face of the horror which is too horrible for a tragedy. Don't now pretend that you are deeply impressed and <laughs> thinking about it. I thought you wanted that. Uh, you should, sorry? Okay. Okay, okay. That's, yeah, pleasure. See, see yeah. yeah, that's the next mask. Telenovelas. I don't suppose that you watch Brazilian telenovelas? All the time. <laughs> uh, sure, I, I saw my portion of telenovelas. But I think what Slavoj meant was that um, not only telenovelas, yeah. but a lot of TV production in general. So also Desperate Housewives, something that is considered a TV drama, or yes. I don't know how, how they call uh, would it. Would you judge them as uh, comedies in the sense we talked about them? No. I think that if we're talking about Desperate Housewives, I think that's a very interesting TV series. Mm -hmm. In a sense that um, its attitude towards reality of a housewife is exactly a comical one and not a tragical one, although that uh, everything that happens in this TV series is a total critique of American suburban uh, life. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting because 
uh, under the pretense of these almost uh, comical uh, events, you have this deeper critique of, uh, you know, housewives' life and American consumerism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, since your novel is written basically from this main character's perspective, I mean, he's your hero, uh, was it hard for you to imagine, uh, you know, to have this, this guy who's now trying to get his girlfriend back by dating other girls all the time, or was it really simple? Uh, you mean, if, how was I yeah. um, going into character? I don't know, I just pretended that I have this great imagination and I pretended to be these guys. <laughs> So I think we just listened to four pages of him encountering one of the girls and uh, then you can sleep and you can listen and uh, you can listen too or sleep and then you can wake up and murder me. Okay, so the first uh, encounter is uh, with Brigitta and I just cut it short so that we can go on talking. It's not exactly the first, but one of the... It's one of the first, right? And uh, he's a... We should know about him. He's working with, uh, for a newspaper, which yeah, you know. Yeah, he's a photographer for this ma the major newspaper in Slovenia. Er traf Brigitta an Allerheiligen. Am Abend hatte er sich mit seiner Kamera zur Motivsuche auf den Weg zum Friedhof gemacht. Ganz vertieft war er zwischen den vielen Gräbern herumgewandert und nachdem auch die letzten Besucher sich auf ihren Weg zurück ins Land der Lebenden machten und die Stille des friedlichen Kerzenlichts wieder über Schale dem Friedhof herrschte, fiel sein Blick auf ein Mädchen, das unter einem Baum auf einer Bank saß. Sie trug einen langen schwarzen Ledermantel und eine Mütze. Er meinte, er könnte im Kerzenlicht einen Wust widerspenstigen roten Haars daraus hervorlugen sehen, er beobachtete, wie sie sich ab und zu Strähnen um den Finger wickelte, sie sich an die Lippen zog und nervös darauf kaute. Erst dann fiel sein Blick auf den Umschlag des Buchs, in dem sie versunken war, Marx Kapital. Ihm schien das etwas fehl am Platz, eine allzu schwierige Lektüre an diesem Ort, aber schließlich entschied er, dass es gerade deshalb ein Bild wert war. Er könnte ein amüsantes Foto werden, dachte er sich, es war weit genug entfernt von ihr, sie würde ihn nicht sofort bemerken. Als er ihr Gesicht in den Fokus bekam, fiel ihm auf, dass er es mochte. Es war blass, zeichnete sich durch Ernst, Besorgnis und strenge Züge aus, alles abgemildert durch die Lippen und wenn er sich nicht irrte, auch durch große blaue Augen, obwohl er sich der Farbe nicht ganz sicher war, denn sie hatte eine Menge schwarzen Lidschatten aufgelegt. Die Unterlippe durchbohrte ein Piercing, ebenso eine Augenbraue. Die rothaarige Version von Larsons Lisbeth Salander dachte er bei sich, nur dass die Tattoos, die es bestimmt gab, bei ihr von Kleidung bedeckt waren. Er nahm sich Zeit, diese ungewöhnliche Schönheit in Nahaufnahme zu betrachten, jedenfalls so lange, bis sein fotografisches Objekt seinen Blick oder vielmehr den Blick seines Objektivs erwiderte. Ziemlich wütend erwiderte das Mädchen stand sofort auf und rief, »Hey, hey, was soll das? Was treiben Sie da, Sie Perversling?« Matthias drehte sich um und stapfte davon. Aber sie holte ihn ein und krallte sich in seiner Jacke fest. »Was soll das? Na los, löschen Sie das!« »Nein, nein, schauen Sie, die Fotos sind symbolisch. Es geht um Marx. Man sieht sie ja gar nicht,« entschuldigte er sich umständlich. »Und für wen machen Sie die? Für die Zeitung. Warum? Für Delo. Habe ich schon verstanden. Ich wollte den Grund wissen.« es ist aller Seelen, ja und? Wir gedenken diesen Tag in unserer Zeitung. Was für eine Scheiße! 
Nach einer kurzen Pause fügte sie hinzu, ist mir egal, löschen Sie das, ich will nicht durch die Presse geschleift werden. Aber es geht doch gar nicht um Sie, es geht um Marx und die Toten, das ist doch viel besser. Matthias wurde irgendwie wieder sicherer. Wie lustig, dass mein Leben eine nützliche Darstellung des Todes abgibt, aber nein danke, mein Schale gehört mir und mein Marx in Schale gehört mir auch ganz allein. Sie war sehr bestimmt. Als er merkte, dass er sich die Zähne an ihr ausbeißen würde, nahm Matthias seine Kamera, tippte auf ein paar Knöpfe und reichte sie ihr mit dem Zusatz, schauen Sie, wie wunderschön Sie sind. Das Mädchen sah auf die Fotos und erwiderte, verpissen Sie sich mit Ihrem Wunderschön, löschen Sie alles. Aber ich bin überzeugt, das sind die besten Fotos aus Schale, die heute jemand gemacht hat, vielleicht sogar die besten überhaupt, bat Matthias abermals auf eine ausnehmend hilflose Art und Weise. Hör mal zu, du Schwachkopf. Nochmal, ich werde nicht euer Postergirl für aller Seelen, verstanden? Warum denn nicht? Haben Sie etwas gegen die Toten? Okay, ich versuch's mal so. Da ich ja anscheinend Leute im Zustand des Verfalls mag, habe ich kein Interesse daran, in einer Zeitung für die Lebenden aufzutauchen. Äh, ich bin durchaus kein Befürworter des Nachlebens, aber ich kann absolut keinen Beweis dafür finden, dass es uns mit Sicherheit ganz sicher ist, dass die Toten Delo nicht lesen würden. Das brachte ein Lächeln auf ihr Gesicht. Sie schlossen einen Kompromiss zwischen den Lebenden und den Toten und wählten ein Bild, auf dem ihr Gesicht nicht zu erkennen war, auf dem man aber Marx sehr gut erkannte und daneben das Grab. Auf so eine Einigung musste man anstoßen. Und wo ging das besser als im Billardhaus, dem Zufluchtsort der verfolgten Raucher, jener lebenden Toten dieser Welt. Matthias hatte schnell herausgefunden, dass das Mädchen, das seine Zeit mit Marx an Gräbern verbrachte, Brigitta hieß und Wirtschaft studierte, Sie war an der wirtschaftswissenschaftlichen Fakultät eingeschrieben, damit sie diese Quasi-Wissenschaft, wie sie es nannte, später einmal eine moderne Art und Weise der Umsetzung von Marx in der Welt der Wirtschaft entgegenhalten konnte. Während sie ihm ihre ersten Versuche vorstellte, Marx innerhalb der zeitgenössischen wirtschaftlichen Dogmatik wieder auferstehen zu lassen, betrachtete Matthias sie genauer. Er bemerkte, dass sie kleine Handflächen hatte mit dünnen Fingern, die immer und immer wieder zu den roten Haaren wanderten, sie um den Finger wickelten, und erst wieder losließen, als sie nach dem Tabak griff. Während sie unverwandt redete, konnte er ihre Lippen bewundern, die rund, aber nicht zu voll waren, als dass ihre Worte nicht klug gewählt, ihre Überzeugung nicht überzeugend geklungen hätten und ihre Begeisterung authentisch. Er war enttäuscht, dass er unter ihrem langen schwarzen Pulli nicht mehr von der Figur sah, aber nach dem einen Blick auf ihre Beine in den engen schwarzen Jeans vorhin, als sie ihren Ledermantel ausgezogen hatte, war überzeugt, dass ihr Körper, genau wie sie insgesamt, auch ganz ohne Distanz zwischen ihnen, ihn nicht enttäuschen würde. Sie haben mir gar nicht zugehört. Sie hatte seine geistige Abwesenheit bemerkt. Äh, natürlich habe ich das nicht. Ich bin viel stärker an dir interessiert. Du bist lebendig. Marx ist tot. Das ist das Dümmste, was ich je gehört habe. Nur weil ein Autor tot ist, bedeutet das nicht, dass seine Theorie nicht mehr weiterlebt. Vielen Dank. So this is the scene where you are actually talking about Marx and uh, the, the image which Marx still makes in, in at least on the photograph. And uh, he seems to be really interested in the girl all the time and he wants to practice Marxism on her as she is, uh, you know, claiming and uh, this is getting weirder and weirder between the two of them. Um, that ties in into your old obsession for Marx and now uh, can you 
imagine of how this guy can ever be happy or is he lost? Okay, I really, now I really feel bad. I don't want to occupy too much time, so I will really be short. First, you know, you have to, yeah, first, uh, the mic. Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, first, at the end of the novel, when he gets together with this girl, it always reminded me at the ending of a film that we both like. Uh, by chance, I know. How is that? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Irish movie? The, the Crying Game. Where at the end you have a happy ending, but a totally impossible happy ending, you know. So I, I, some critics accused you of male chauvinism, like they spend the night together and that's what really what a lesbian woman needs to repeat Freud in a vulgar way, penis normalis, zweimal täglich, and then lesbian will be cured. But I think it's totally wrong way to read the finale of your novel in this way. I think it's absolutely not implicated that there will be this kind of a happy heterosexual couple and so on. My dream is that she will remain a lesbian, maybe she will from time to time sleep with other girls around, but nonetheless they will be an absolute couple and so on. It's something much nicer as an impossible relationship. Well, as far as film references go, uh, actually Some Like It Hot is much nearer my ending. I mean, yeah. You can see the directly. Yeah, the joke, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, but I agree with that part that uh, because she is a lesbian, um, I mean, she is a lesbian, but they still form a couple. And uh, my ambition here was to show that love moves in a mysterious, <laughs> in mysterious ways, in a sense that there is no one formula for love. That actually there can be many forms of, you know. Uh, passionate love, and I think that even Lubitsch, uh, that, that that is one of his major contributions, is that in so many movies he showed so different um, different kinds of love and dif different possibilities for a couple or threesome and so on, and I think that's important to to wider the space for something as um, catastrophic but at the same time magical as love. I mean, he's really, uh, how many girls do, does he try until he kind of 13, 12? I lost count. Yeah. <laughs> 12, uh, I think, uh, something like So actually, he, uh, he is the kind of guy which you attacked as somebody who is kind of like in this consumerist stage of trying, trying, trying. Yes, but I, I believe that the experience of many young people today, or not even young people, is that before you find that ultimate partner, you go through a lot of relationships and who f which fail and this failure can be very hurtful so um, my ambition was not to show this as you know consumerist and very um, I don't know promiscuous personality but actually as this trauma that is uh, I think that ma many people share today. No, and it is very playful. I mean, uh, what I left out was a wonderful, playful passage about time. You know, that you, we all know this science. Oh, well, there are lots of girls around, and there's a lot of just time heals all the wounds and all this stuff. And actually, he is kind of making uh, an inner monologue about it, which is just so funny that it could have been in a movie uh, by Lubitsch. So, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, uh, you know, all the uh, German audience should really try to 
buy your book right now in Slovene, try to read it, and then wait <laughs> for all the translations to come out. So it's <laughs> wonderful, you know, good experience too. Um, so that seems to be in opposition. I mean, I don't want to be the uh, advocatus uh, diabolus right here, but... Uh, Who is the diabolus? He, yeah. She or me? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> oh, then I'm the judge now. Okay, so I can... Don't worry, don't worry. Okay, um, but so do you think it's a generational gap as well that you kind of like attack this? Uh, I mean, you have been brought up in the 60s, 70s, right? So you experience all this so-called free love circuit, you know? And uh, you perceive our times as different, even though you were attacking them as promiscuous and a little shallow. Uh, what is your standpoint on that? Well, I know there is a sociological term for this kind of youth, and it's called serial monogamy. And it describes exactly this, that people go from partner to partner looking for true love. Uh, but I do have a comment about this free love of <laughs> Slavoj's generation. Uh, I think, I mean, what is interesting to me is that you had this sexual revolution at the end of 60s, which was supposed to be this great emancipation, everybody, you know, freely enjoying sex and love and so on. But actually, the consequence of this great emancipation was, I think, a conservative regression. Even if you look at, at cultural products, I don't know, The Graduate, where Dustin Hoffman plays, uh, uh, that. Can anyone imagine a movie like that made today? You know, a young uh, student uh, having an affair with his uh, future wife's mother and depicted in such a way that is not tragical and total catastrophe. I think this is a sad message from the love generation. I mean, this great um, revolution had, I think, a very negative impact as a consequence. I don't know if you agree. Uh, uh, no, what, what makes me sad rather is this. It's how, what, uh, I'm not dismissing the 60s as just a, a, a deadlock and so on, but how easily the 60s were incorporated into, I hate this bombastic term, ruling ideology, even strengthening it. Like, there were three great demands of the 60s. First, Schlussmitt uh, sexual uh, uh, repression, free love. Second, uh, Schlussmittis standardized big universities, more creative free education. And third one, Schlussmittis uh, 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 great factories, Fordism, serial work, more creative. This is where we are here. You definitely no longer get a permanent job in a big factory because you are in much deeper sheet. You are happy if you get precarious worker, one contract here, the other. You no longer, it's more and more rare to get a solid big university study. You always have to make, you know, a little bit of pragmatic education here, there, and so on. Everything pragmatically oriented. They say how to solve real problems. And again, in love you have all this liberation and, as it is easy to a psychoanalyst to describe why, 
we ended up with much more impotence and frigidity than ever and so on. Because this is not a joke. All my psychoanalytic friends, friends who don't bluff like me in psychoanalytic theory but really do practice, they are telling me how it's not a joke, how, you know, the typical patient today no longer has this traditional problem, like I have some obscure perverse desires I cannot enjoy because I internalize some parental prohibitions. Then I go to the analyst to get rid of these internal, internalized prohibitions and I can really enjoy it. Today they told me it's almost the opposite. You feel guilty not for enjoying in some illicit way. You feel guilty for not being able to enjoy. People feel guilty for not being, a, in other words, enjoyment is quite literally becoming what Lacan says when he says that uberi, superego, that the message of superego is genise, enjoy. That uh, this is today's superego. You literally feel guilty for not enjoying, which is why I claim the great task of psychoanalytic treatment, if it still works today, is not to learn you how to get rid of obstacles and to enjoy, but to teach you that you, to get you, to liberate you from this superego injunction enjoy. The message is not don't enjoy, but you don't have to enjoy. It should be a pure surplus, like it happens or not, but not, not a pressure. And don't underestimate it to what extent this pressure, enjoy, you have to enjoy, is effectively today a kind of a pressure. Another reason, and then I will really stop and please you go on, why I have problems today is, you know, what Always, I find I think love, as authentic, passionate love, is by definition an exception. It happens with the unique person here, there, maybe it doesn't happen. It's, uh, this is why I'm deeply suspicious of all those proclamations of I love humanity, I love everyone. No, I mean, you must know this, not far from here. Didn't a certain person said almost three decades ago, aber ich liebe euch alle, you know. And it's deeply significant who this person was, you know. So I, I even, even when it's done in a much more sublime way, like this is my big problem, although I highly appreciate it as a meditative attitude. Take Buddhism where the idea is, you accept or love all reality, even the lowest worm, and so on and so on. Yes, but you know there is another side to Buddhism. There, you, even today, do you know that there is not only, uh, as anti-Islamists like to say, uh, Islamic terrorism. No, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, you have very strong Buddhist terrorism, and so on. I mean, the paradox is how Buddhism in power unfortunately, can also justify the most brutal terror you can imagine. And it's not, as many honest Buddhists admit it, it's not, uh, it's not uh, a distortion or what, it's in, 
it's in it. For example, it's one of the, for me, most depressive things to read, the writings of D.T. Suzuki. When we were young, he was the great hippie. Yes. But you know, in the 30s and 40s, he was writing slightly different texts. He was writing justifications of Japanese militarism, where he literally proposed to Japanese military that an elementary Buddhist training makes you a perfect killer. The idea is, let's say I have to kill you. If I still have my ego, I think I'm responsible for it, I do problems. If I go through Satori, the Buddhist enlightenment, then I see there is no substantial reality, it's not you and me, we are both just multiple phenomena floating in the world, and the example is from Suzuki himself. It's not that I, because I overcome my ego, that I stab you. It's that just in this free dance of phenomena, my knife is floating in the air, and your body somehow dances, falls on it. I was just in the way, yeah? Sorry? I was just in the way of the knife, right? I'm yeah. Yes. yeah, no, it's, you, I'm not now making fun of Buddhism. I'm just saying, and this is tragic, how I don't believe in insight enlightenment. I claim you can be, I don't know how much authentically enlightened insight. Unfortunately, it doesn't prevent you from doing the most terrifying thing imaginable in reality. Since we started our evening with the question of uh, the, the role of comedy, I will also close with this question about the role of comedy. What is the political role of comedy today? How can you imagine a Lubitsch movie uh, changing our perspective on society or sexual politics, etc.? Well, I, I'm not sure I have the answer, but to be or not to be that you can see now, that it will follow. It's a good example of how to um, approach a terrible uh, historic events such as was uh, uh, World War II. And the political dimension uh, here, I think Mladen Tolar wrote a lot about this, is at least uh, we can see it in two levels. The first is the level of repetition. So we have a lot of repetitions and uh, imposters, like uh, there is Hitler and uh, we have uh, um, repetition of Hitler and you have repetition of Colonel Erhardt and Mr. Silecki and so on. And the point is that when you have this imposter, the original loses its strength and authenticity. So when you redouble a certain character, the original, the real Hitler, is not as powerful as he was before. So this strategy of comedy is already in itself political. And the other uh, political um, message I see in to be or not to be, and is probably significant also for today's times, is that Lubitsch showed in, I don't know, it was in 1941, when it really looked that Nazi, Nazi power will take over the world, uh, he showed that they can be beaten. Even a clumsy group of Polish actors can beat Nazis. And that is, I think, the basic message of the movie, and it's very empowering, especially if you consider the context in which it was made. Because you gave me this theory. What I find also so subversive is that it never gets obsessed with this great ethical topic. It's the same time a committee about a clumsy husband and the wife who is gladly cheating him. 
Isn't this wonderful that even if you have this, one of the greatest crimes in history of humanity, it doesn't dismiss everyday life comedy. You told me this, I'm now. Yeah, we can read the movie because there is this actor couple, Mr. and Mrs. Tura, and she is femme fatale. And we can read the whole movie as a movie about this woman that will not be prevented by Second World War, you know, to have lovers and court, courtmanship and stuff like that. So be aware whenever somebody is claiming to be or not to be something horrible that's happened to your spouse or to your wife or to whoever. And that's the closing remark for today. Thank you so much, Slava Zizek. Thank you so much, Jela Krecic. VoiceRepublic.com, home to the spoken word.